0: Post-production for this episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored by Spaces, the new chat-based app for queer people to connect over all the things they're passionate about. And now, for a limited time, you can invest in Spaces for as little as $100 via a WeFunder campaign. Help support this much-needed, safe, digital platform for the LGBTQ community. Look for Spaces in the App Store and learn more about how you can invest by visiting queerspaces.com. The monkeypox pandemic continues, but fortunately, the number of new cases has begun to decline, thanks in part to gay men who have been adjusting their sexual behavior while also seeking out vaccination options. Unfortunately, inequities still exist when it comes to access for underserved minority communities. If you were one of the lucky ones who got a first dose a month ago, you might notice a different method of delivering the second booster shot four weeks later. Most health providers and community clinicians are now administering the second shot via an intradermal injection in the forearm. This allows them to vaccinate five times more people compared to the traditional injection method. Contact your personal physician or local public health department to see if they have more shots to give out now that they're using this new system. Talk to your friends about vaccination and help advocate for people who may not have the same access as you. Together, we can help trend that new infection rate towards zero. Just a few quick reminders, I continue to connect with listeners via the Spaces app in all four of the Fruit Bowl sponsored spaces, so check it out and come say hi. I'm still gathering more short-form listener submissions. You can record yourself with your phone's voice memo app and tell a 5-10 to 10 minute story, and then email me the sound file, or just write an email to Dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com. Thanks to my latest patrons, Rob and Robbie. Learn more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast. I'm shortening my introduction for this episode because right after Andrew's featured interview, we have a follow-up conversation and I ask him what all he's been up to since we recorded his original interview in August of 2019. So stay tuned for that, as well as a special musical contribution from Andrew at the conclusion of the episode. This episode was edited by Bailey Becker and mixed by Ryan Whedon. But just a heads up, Andrew's interview describes childhood sexual abuse, substance abuse, physical violence from past partners and a roommate, as well as trauma from his involuntary participation in a for-profit troubled teen facility. Okay, that's enough from me. Now, here's Andrew.
1: I have a vague memory of being like, three and telling my mom,
2: I'm going to have sex. And she was like, what? I'm going to bump butts. This is Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex.
1: My name is Andrew. I'm 31, and I graduated high school in 2007.
2: This episode was recorded in October of 2019 in Jersey City.
1: I grew up 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia in a town called Westchester, Pennsylvania. There's some families who have been there for a long time, and they're more on the conservative side. And I guess during the 70s and 80s, there was sort of an influx of liberal families that came in. So It's mostly blue, but there's definitely little patches of red. My mom came from a relatively conservative Irish Catholic household, and my dad grew up in Jersey City in a reformed Jewish household so beliefs were definitely not conservative I would say moderate my parents actually never told me what their political affiliations were they refused to tell me what their political affiliations were because they wanted me to sort of mold my own opinions I now know that my dad was a Democrat and so was my mother but um, growing up it was never really a question of or politics, it was more like right and wrong. They definitely weren't like, you know, activists or protesters or anything like that, but they were, they were cool people. They are cool people. I'm actually one of five. Well, one of five, three of them are half siblings. So my, bro- my mom had my brother and I, and um, my dad had three kids from a previous marriage. So growing up, I had a lot of brothers and sisters. Not so much in the house. Um, my brother went to boarding school when he was in 11th grade, so during my formative years as a teenager I was pretty much an only child it Was sort of like family in the periphery. My mom told me that she always knew um, I was putting on her dresses and her high heels and makeup and was performing. <laughs> I was basically like a baby drag queen when I was, uh, you know, three or four and uh she she always knew, you know, and I thought it was gonna be like a big made made for TV mo- like moment where I was crying, and um, actually, I think I was nine or ten, and I was just upset that I was getting bullied at school, and she was like, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And I said, "Mom, you have to pull over." and we were on our way to the mall or something, and uh she <laughs> she pulled the car over. I remember it w- it was raining and And I was like, I have to tell you something. And she was like, are you gay? And I said, how did you know? (laughs) She was like, I've known since you were two. Um, Do you still want to go to the mall? (laughs) And that was was when I told my mom. And then I kept it from my dad for a little while. But he actually found out because I left porn on his computer. (laughs) I was talking to older men in chat rooms when I was like 13, which Looking back on it now is not a good idea. Um, but uh, I had, like, saved a picture of this guy's dick, and I put it in a folder on my dad's computer, stupidly labeled, like, Andrew's eyes only, and he he printed it out, and he was he brought it to my room, and he was like, what's this? <laughs> and uh, I just remember being like, I don't, know what, I don't know what that is, I don't know what that is, and he was like, Andrew, this is very serious. These men are dangerous, you know? So he was more concerned about my safety, which I thought was really cool, and he was like, you know, I love you no matter what, and, and just be careful, And because it was early 2000s, like late 90s, early 2000s, and, you know, my parents were just afraid that I was going to do something stupid later in life. And then my brother literally said, don't get AIDS, cool, let's go play video games. You know, so. So I was kind of an awkward kid growing up, had a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress and a lot of, you know, I don't want to say mental problems, but like ADHD and stuff like that. And and, um, I was on lots of different medications because I was kind of like the poster child for ADD and had trouble making friends because I was just a big ball of anxiety and um, would get made fun of a lot. I had really weird obsessions. Um, I taught myself how to river dance at a very early age. I loved opera. And, you know, when you're 11 or 12, that doesn't really go over well on the playground when you're like, you know, singing Ave Maria at the top of your lungs. (laughs) So I got made fun of a lot and beat up and called a faggot and shoved into lockers and all that kind of stuff. And I had like a core group of friends who was kind of like the Island of the Misfit Toys group. At least that's kind of what it felt like to me and uh when i came out in school i actually came out as bi first and i was dating this girl at a, at the time who is now <laughs> who funny story is actually um one of the i believe she's one of the head of the aids project in cape cod she or works for it or something and and i ran into her in P-Town last year and i hadn't i hadn't spoken to her for years and she was like Andrew, that and took me a second and I was like, Amanda? And now she's like a big old lesbian living in P-Town, which is crazy to me because she was the one that took it the worst and I lost her as a friend. And I mean, cause we were, you know, dating and little kids and I had gone away to sleepaway camp for that summer and I met this kid, Jake, and fell in love with him. And I was like, how do I tell my girlfriend? <laughs> so she, uh, did not take it well because she came from a very strict catholic background and her her dad did not like me at all and was like you can't be around him you're gonna go to hell with him and da, 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 da. so and then I mean, obviously she finally came to her senses but yeah, you know, that was like the first memory of like really being rejected for being gay or queer it feels like i have known about it since i can remember like i've always been sexual. So I have a vague memory of being like three and telling my mom (laughs) That I think I was like I'm gonna have sex and she was like what I'm gonna bump butts (laughs) I thought that's what I don't know if I don't know if three is the right age But it was definitely like I remember that happening bump butts. Yeah, like hip like when you when you like when you're dancing and you bump hips. Like I thought that's what, that's what that was. But I think I discovered it. I mean, yeah, no, I really, I feel like I've always been sexual or like driven. Cause I remember like humping poles when I was in kindergarten and like, because it felt good and I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, I can't really, I can't really pinpoint at like a age. The first time I learned about queer sex was when I found my mom's um, erotica book. So she had this box under her bed of like naughty things like a I guess there was a vibrator or whatever and she had these erotica books that were like art cuz she she was um she was taking an art history class I think and and it was it was called erotica 3 and it was this thick and at the end of the book there was a painting of an egyptian pharaoh fucking his slave <laughs> and i just remember looking at that and being like Oh my God! You know, and and I think I was I was pretty young, um, and I cut it out of the book and took it in the, and um, she noticed, <laughs> but that was I think I was like seven when I came across that. I put it in, underneath the mattress, in between the mattress and the box spring. I just remember like that driving me crazy, and like curiosity, and I think it was just like spitballed from there because I just remember. Sneaking down, watching Skinamax at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, My mom had all of the real sex on DVD. (laughs) Or not DVD, it was on, she would like, she would tape them. And she would put them them in like (laughs) non-labeled video things. And I'd be like, mom, I'm going to bed. Take one of the VHS's upstairs and it was like, real sex, real sex, take 30, you know. Um, So that was really actually informative because I watched all of those. I learned how to suck dick, <laughs> you know, this, through the the '90s documentary series of Real Sex. That was definitely like very formative. I was about age seven when I asked my dad about sex. My dad was is a doctor, so it was very, very like, this is what happens. This is a penis. This is a vagina. This is how babies are made. Uh, you know, I. I Learned about maturation at a very early age. Um, it was never like this, the birds and the bees kind of talk. It was more science related. I mean, at such a young age, my dad's word was everything. So it was kind of like, okay. I used to, I used to cut holes in my stuffed animals and fuck them. I remember I had to get rid of a teddy bear because like it was so gross and crusty. <laughs> I cut a hole in the front of the stuffed animal or the butt of the stuffed animal and I would fuck it until I ejaculated at it and it got really gross so I had to throw it away. <laughs> Curious George. I had a Curious George doll that I mutilated. Um, teddy Ruxpin. <laughs> I'm just remembering this now, so this is like, I had a polar bear that felt really good cause it was soft. That's about it. My harem. <laughs> and I think I had a My Buddy doll that I would cuddle with and like play around with. Do you remember, do you know the Chucky doll? So that's based on a doll that's My Buddy which was like this life-size toddler. I don't know, it was like three feet tall or whatever and wore like, it had like Oshkosh Bagosh overalls And it was my buddy that I, when I was, I guess I was younger then when I would experiment on it. I don't know. When I would see things on TV and be like, this is what I'm doing with my buddy. Mm -hmm. Celebrity crush. Oh, uh, Brad Pitt, I guess. Or George Clooney, I don't know. They were like the older daddy crushes that I had when I was like 12. Because I would see the, what was it, like People's Hottest. My mom read People Magazine, so I'd be like, People magazines, Hottest, Bachelors, whatever, and it was like a big picture of Brad Pitt. I just remember being like, oh, he's handsome. (laughs) I had a friend that we would like fool around and fuck around and, I mean, we were young, like first grade, second grade. He was sort of like the boy next door and we would, you know, practice on each other and that was sort of the, you know, we would, hook up. I think it was a mutual exploration. So I went to sleepaway camp in upstate New York when I was eight. and went by myself. Um, my, my mom was totally against it. My dad was like, he needs to do something because he went to camp when he was a kid. And I went away and it was a drama camp. It was a theater camp. I just remember one night I had a fever and the nurse wasn't there. The nurse's husband was doing the rounds and checking on everybody, and and I wasn't feeling well, and he was like, oh, okay, let's take you back to the bunk and um, put you, you know, get you, get your fever down. So uh, he threw me in the shower, and then he got in the shower with me. And from, this is the part where it gets really fuzzy. This is the part where the trauma, it almost feels like I'm looking at it through a kaleidoscope. I don't know if, he fucked me or if there was any kind of penetration, but I just remember being paralyzed and also really, really, really sick. So I don't know if, you know, and that's the thing, Like I don't know if it was like a hallucination or if it was something that actually happened or, but it's definitely a memory that's in my mind that has caused a lot of pain. (laughs) There's something else that happened there as well. So I moved bunks after that happened and there was another counselor who would get everybody in it was like late at night and everybody would sit around in a circle and jerk off and it, he would he was he was like the leader and I remember when I told my parents because the guy told me never to tell anybody he was like if you tell anybody I'll kill you that that shit the counselor yeah I just remember being terrified of him because he was like a like a I don't want to say he was like an upstate New York like tatted you know, bare, my world was ending, falling apart. And I just, I remember I ran into my brother's room and I locked the door and stayed in there. And my mom was like, you have to come out, you have to come out, you have to come out, you have to come out. And we, we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And she was like, if you just write down on a piece of paper, what's wrong? And I slid it under the door. Cause I was, I was mortified. I was completely embarrassed. And like, just like, how am I gonna tell First of all, I'm, at this point I'm nine, so I'm like dealing with the after effects of it, like the ripple effects of it. And now I have to tell my parents. It was like, I know it sounds super dramatic. My parents started an investigation, and they, he denied it. And the counselor did. He was like, I don't know what you're talking about. But then something, that. but then that other guy, the the ringleader of the circle jerk, he confessed and got arrested. It's weird because I think about that whole situation and how, how how it's affected me, and my proclivities throughout my life. You know how I'm attracted to older men, how I'm sexually compulsive with older men, and I kind of wonder if that's like the root, because I definitely, definitely, definitely have daddy issues. <laughs> kind of reclaimed it, I guess you could say. But I know from that point on, my sexual being was awakened. I guess you could say. I'm way too early in age because I would, I don't want to say coerce, but like my friends, we were, like I thought that that was okay and we were, you know, fooling around at a very early age and I know now that that's because I was molested and I thought that that was what people did. So my relationships to sex has always been, I mean, I, I, there's so many times that, I mean, after that happened, I would, you know, experiment with my friends. Probably way too much. So, I mean, I definitely acted out. And and it, what's what's even stranger is as an adult, you think back to these things and, you know, as an adult male, queer male, I have sex quite a bit and I don't really think that's a problem. But then I think back to how much sex I've had my entire life, even from an early age, even at like 13 and 14, I was like, it's it's been a problem. I had a crush on a straight guy who liked to fuck with me and like tease that he was going to do something and then never did. I eventually did tell him how I felt and he was pretty cool about it. He was like, I'm like your brother. That would be weird. Also, I'm straight. (laughs) We're still friends to this day. I'm actually going to his wedding in December. This This is now high school. So this is freshman year, 14. So I had a girlfriend in high school, Mercedes, but she was into girls and I was sleeping with boys but we were together <laughs> and we used to say that we like we liked messing with straight people we liked watching their heads explode but we were having sex which is really weird but we were also using a lot of drugs so it was kind of convenient and fun and like we were 13 or 14 and you know hormones were raging but that was my girl crush yeah I'm still friends with her to this day I went to a summer arts theater camp, not the one when I was younger, but this is when I'm like 12 or 13. He was like the cool goth kid. He listened to Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson and did not give a fuck about what anybody thought of him and wore giant trip pants and shopped at Hot Topic. And I thought he was the coolest thing. And I was so in love with this boy. And I remember it was like, while everyone was at dinner, we to the the rock shed and it was raining and he pulled his dick out and i blew him and then he blew me and then we made out and i just remember being like this this is what i'm meant to be doing this is this person this is yes (laughs) we were dating at least i thought we were and (laughs) as much as you can date when you're 13 and 14 and uh no he he took my anal virginity he fucked me and then over the course of the entire summer, he like completely broke my heart. I fell in love with him and was like, would write him like little n- love notes and cards and stuff. I made him a ring, <laughs> and then at the end of the summer, he threw it at me and he was like, "I never want to see you again." It was very dramatic. We were both theater majors, and um, and then we we found out that we lived close by each other and continued hooking up until I got sent away to Utah, and then when I got back from Utah. We actually went to a bathhouse together in Philly, which was fun. It's funny, he actually lives in Brooklyn and uh, we're still sort of in touch to this day. I got kicked out of high school for doing drugs in high school. I went to a, a, like a learning disability high school, lots of medication, therapy. Home life was really, really shitty. Um, my mom was an alcoholic, my dad kind of Tried but wasn't quite there emotionally. Everything was really pragmatic, everything was like, Oh, you have a feeling, here's a pill, you know. He was a doctor, so he was very, very into the psychopharmacology and um, you know, I went to specialist after specialist after specialist and was on Ritalin, Adderall, Concerta, Risperdol, Concerto, or some vivance, or like all these different stimulants. From a very early age I remember being up and down and, and anxious and manic and all these you know different things and then in high school I got into drugs and alcohol because it would kill all of that you know I didn't have to deal with my mom's drinking I didn't have to deal with the fact that my parents were arguing all the time that they were going through a messy divorce and I was queer and coming-of-age and had no nowhere to turn you know um there's no one in my family who was gay and I started going to this youth group this gay youth group in Wayne Pennsylvania and that, that was sort of when I really met more queer people for the first time. And that was the group of people that I started hanging out with, and then they were partying, so we would go out clubbing. I was really young, and it just kind of spiraled down from there and started doing cough medicine every weekend and just was trying to numb myself as much as I could until it finally came to a head, and then I got kicked out of high school. And my parents were like, well, you can't go to public school, so we're sending you to Utah. So I got taken from my bedroom at 3 o'clock in the morning on February fifteenth, 2005. Two big guys came and got me, put me in a car, drove me to BWI in Baltimore, put me on a plane to Utah. I got sent to a wilderness therapy program, which was Mormon-owned and operated. And they took everything from me, stripped me down, strip-searched me. They gave me... Clothing obviously like outfitted me with gear and stuff. Um, A tarp to make a sack out of, parachute cord, and a bag for food and now jeans. And they put me in a truck and they drove me two hours west of some Podunk town in Utah into the desert and dropped me off with eight other kids. And I was there for eight weeks and I hiked 13 miles a day to my next water source and simultaneously at the same time did really intensive therapy. So February 2005 to 2000 to April of 2005 was the wilderness and then I went to a residential treatment center from fe- from April 2005 until January 2006. What happens is you go to an education consultant. The education consultant puts you in one of these programs where you go and they evaluate you and they choose what your next step's gonna be. And I went to a residential treatment center. This is the early 2000s when the troubled teen industry was like really booming. And they changed the law. In Utah, you had to be 18 to sign yourself out of one of those programs. In all other states, it's 14. So I was there. And then from January 2006 until June of 2007, I went to an emotional growth boarding school where they drug tested you every time you went off campus. Kids were boiling ethanol or like hand sanitizer to get drunk. It was intensive therapy, family therapy. Again, Mormon owned and operated. And they basically would like strip you of your individuality and I had to wear a polo and khakis and my dad threw out all of my old clothes. So when I got home, when I was 18, all of my old self had been gone and taken. It wasn't until I was 19 when I moved out of my mom's house, packed my shit up, put it in the car, moved down to Philly to sleep on my friend's couch for six months, got a job, and then worked my way out of her house to get my own place. Um, and then I became a pro-dom, a professional dominant. I, a, a friend of mine, she opened up a, the first house of domination in Center City, Philadelphia and she was looking for an apprentice, and she taught me how to flog and do basically all the S&M stuff, and I started taking clients. So I supported myself until I finally got back in touch with my family and said, I want to go back to school, and that was when I was 20. When I was 21, I'm at a 38-year-old, and it was very, it was a very romantic meeting. I was outside of a bar in Philly, and the bartender is a wrestler, or, like, an old wrestling coach. And he was showing, he was doing a move, and he basically, like, drop-kicked me and pinned me to the ground. And Joseph came over and pushed Rick off of me and was like, oh, my God, are you okay? And it was like a, oh, my, look, ooh, someone's coming to rescue me kind of thing, um... We were together for a year and a half. He was a radical fairy. We were moving in together and we wanted to have a legal contract, so the lease, and then as well as a betrothal ritual. So we got all of our friends together and had a hand fasting ceremony, which is like a pagan ritual. That's the first time I was really, like, I feel like I was really in love with somebody. He was not happy about the fact that I was pro-doming and was like, you gotta get out of that lifestyle, you can't be doing this anymore. And, And then we became boyfriends, and then we're living together. I jumped from him to another older man to another older man. There were always these spurts where I was like, I would get away from these guys and live on my own and, and try to make it and then another older guy would sweep, swoop in and sweep me off my feet. And, and I ended up living with him for a year and a half. And then the reason why I'm up in Jersey City is because I was, started dating this guy for, I was with him for a year. We were in a band together. And then I moved up to Jersey City to be closer to him. And cycle continued. It was not a not a good relationship. And that was the impetus to go back to school after that. Cause I was like, Okay, you're 30 now, you need to get your shit together. Time to time to figure it out. You know. You know how you have those moments where you're like, was I the monster, did this really happen? And I actually had to, I, I texted him a while back about this to confirm that this is the truth. He was sleeping and I woke him up and the dog by accident because I came home late and I crawled into bed and I have her, he went downstairs and he got a knife and he came back upstairs and he started stabbing the mattress because he was like, if if I'm not gonna sleep, no one's gonna sleep. Not his best moment. Yeah, there was a lot of lot of turmoil with that one. It has been very rough emotionally to get here. There's definitely days where I'm like, Uh <laughs> And I think what's interesting is I have deep shame or deep seated shame about stuff like that, right? Like um, I think that the reason why i gravitated towards these men is because on the outside they all had their shit together they were stable they were financially stable they had jobs but they were crazy and um it was just looking back on it now it's like no cuz my parents my dad pushed me he was like Find somebody who is stable and this is what you are looking for and settle down and, you know, the concept of someone being a breadwinner. I carry a lot of shame now, even dating. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm a, I'm a poor college student right now. I really have nothing to offer you except love and support, you know, and, and even then it's like I get down on myself about it because I'm like, no one's going to want me right now. Then I have to tell myself, no, there are breadwinners. That's how that works. Like, it's a partnership. I actually was hooking up with this older gentleman in Boston when I was in college. We, we drove down to this like quarry um, and we were hooking up in his car and a cop came and knocked on the window and we had to make up a story really quickly as to why we were down in the quarry. And we came up with some outlandish story that was like, oh, we were just visiting somebody in the hospital and we, were, we got really sad, so we, we drove down and, and he was like, and this is my son. And I just remember like turning beet red and having to play this part of this older gentleman's son. And then like, just as soon as the cop left, just like getting out of the car and running away <laughs> as fast as I could. Yeah, that was pretty embarrassing. my best move I would say is being able to exchange energy and like be cognizant of that and really be in the moment and out of my head I ask a lot of questions how does that feel are you okay is this is this okay you know usually if there's if you know if I'm playing with someone's nipple and they're like not moaning or groaning I'm like okay moving on <laughs> you know um, generally it's it's being in tune with what their response is. Sometimes it's noticing, you know, a labored breathing or, or um, a muscle twitch or something like that, you know. I don't know, sex for me has been, especially hooking up, has been sort of like lackluster lately, especially with Scruff and Growler and Grinder and Jacked and Whole and whatever else we have. It's like, you know, you can literally talk to somebody for five seconds and they come over and leave. I think it's so accessible that it's almost become not special. Like it's another thing. Like it's like going to the grocery store or like, you know, it's so nonchalant. Before it used to be thrilling and secretive. Like before it was like, you had to go out to a bar and you had to schmooze people and you had to talk. And now it's like, dial-a-dick or, you know, it's like boop, 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 coming over, looking, sure. I oh, don't know, there's no effort. and then going from hooking up to dating. Like the idea of monogamy now is like, okay, you have to find somebody who makes you want to delete these apps, you know? Which I think is strange in and of itself. <laughs> you know? Like you have this this thing that is something that you you check every morning or you you subscribe to it or pay for it. Whereas when I first came out it was like you had to have an internet service provider and Man for Manhunt? Was it Manhunt? Adam for Adam I was on Bear Four One One. Yeah, it's definitely different. I wouldn't say nostalgic. I would say curious what it would be like to just go back to that, because I feel like I'm desensitized, if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. there's just so much of it happening. Don't sweat the small stuff, because it's just sex. <laughs> At the end of the day, if we're talking about like the act of sex, just the physical, you know, person in person, (laughs) Um, don't sweat the small stuff, like shit happens, (laughs) you know, like you can prepare so much, but sometimes it happens and don't freak out about it and just go with the flow and don't beat yourself up and all this kind of stuff, you know. Personally, now, I think people who don't have as many hangups are sexier than, are more fun to have sex with than people who do.
0: And I'm here with Andrew for an update. How are you, Andrew?
1: I'm okay, (laughs) as as well as anybody can be during these crazy times that we find ourselves in.
0: And uh, where are you now? Have you moved since we spoke three years ago? You were in Jersey City...
1: Yep. I was in Jersey City and then the pandemic happened. And then I was there for most of the pandemic. Well, it was a it was a precarious situation because during the pandemic, my roommate, we had a huge falling out. This is in Jersey City. So, you know, the pandemic was strange and we were literally living on top of each other. It was already kind of an abusive relationship to begin with. Mm. Um, we were very toxic and it, it, it was amplified by the pandemic. So,
0: This wasn't somebody you were in a relationship with. This is just your roommate.
1: My best friend for like six or seven years.
0: Oh, that's a shame.
1: It's it's bittersweet. So it was abusive in that he had hit me a couple times. Oh, dear. And I just chalked it up to him being bipolar and like, this is what I have to deal with if I want to be friends with him. And so... He moved out in September. And then from September until about January, I was very isolated. I was living on the, in this apartment by myself, trying to make it through a pandemic alone, freaked out about the virus, like no job, nothing like was just on the edge, right? And then I was there for most of the pandemic. And then I moved to New Orleans for about 11 months. So my two friends in New Orleans, who I had previously visited before the pandemic, I went down to do a DJ gig down there. They were like, look, we have an extra room for you. I threw out most of my shit. I packed up what I could in my car, drove down to New Orleans. And that was in January of 2021. And then I was there from January until October. And
0: you had roommates then. So was it a little less stressful?
1: No, no, it wasn't. Uh, So... They were kind of like my gay dads, right? Like they were like they they kind of took me under their wing. Um, the housing the housing situation was pretty chaotic. They're a couple, and one of their mothers lived with them, and she was very dependent and very uh, sick, like in a wheelchair. Um, so I like partly had to take care of her, and it was, and I was working from the attic in ninety degree weather. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was rough. It was pretty it was pretty rough. But I'm a survivor, man. So I'm like, you are a survivor. And uh, I was just doing like call center work, barely scraping by, but like living with these 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 guys. And when Dalen moved back,
0: Dalen is your
1: Dalen's my partner. He started living with his friends too. So we, he was living in someone's guest room. I was living in someone's guest room. We were kind of just we seized this opportunity to come up and and live up in Albany. So we lived together. We actually met online during the pandemic. Oh, wow. And then Zoom dated for a year. We met on Scruff. We started talking and uh, we found out we had common interests. I threw out an obscure, absolutely fabulous line and he picked it right up. But I was like, okay, we're taking this off Scruff.
0: (laughs) I love that AbFab was a secret code of some kind.
1: I think I said something like, I was a self-raising flower and he was like piss off and I was like all right we're done you're com- you're coming with me.
0: <laughs> and what was it like when you finally met
1: in real life? To be honest, super weird. Uh I'm I'm very much a like feeding off of your energy type of person. Like I'm the type of person that like most of my most of my serious relationships have been found at a bar. It was really weird because we had literally only seen each other on camera in specific angles, right? Like <laughs> in uh, very, very curated specific angles. And it was very strange because I, I I, felt like I fell in love with the person inside the screen.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then meeting them in person was very, It was, it was hard to reconcile the two of those because like... He's six, he's almost like six, five, like getting used to that and getting used to the way that our, our hands felt together and the energy and all that kind of stuff. Like it's very, it was very different than anything that I've ever experienced.
0: Was there like a learning curve? Was there a, a little, like, give, did you give yourself kind of a window to get used to that and sort of fall into some kind of more traditional couple type?
1: Yeah. I think it was interesting to go from like talking every day, watching TV together like we would watch movies on Zoom, that was our dating mm. to like physically going on dates, like, you know, being with each other. It was it was a very different mm-hmm. there were also some times where like all of my old scars that I had from my previous relationship before him wasn't able to be really worked out until we were in person. So we had already been dating for like a year and a half, but then I started going a little psycho.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: like there's no way in hell this person is this cool and this nice and this put and this like kind and like there's there's got to be something going on so like i would i would run like stupid reconnaissance missions <laughs>
0: and, like when when he was out solo you would you would have some insecurity
1: but i didn't have that when we were just dating over zoom yeah it was very like backwards <laughs> it was like you know and to learn and to learn each other's isms and like all that kind of stuff And then uh, that was April. And then by October we had moved up here. So we've been together three years in April because of the pandemic and because, you know, it really put a sort of pin in mortality and like to know that like, okay, you're heading towards your mid thirties. You don't have good credit. You don't have like all these things are piling up and and you're trying to like start a life with somebody. (laughs) It's like, it's really rough
0: yeah but do you think now that you're in albany i'm I'm assuming you're living together yeah has it become more stable and more more predictable
1: yeah so one of the things that my nervous system miss misses (laughs) is when you're so traumatized and you're so used to chaos when there's quiet and calm your your body's like wait What's going on? Mm-hmm. So like I work from home, I go to the grocery store, we watch TV, we have sex. I'm like, is this what a real relationship is supposed to be like? Cause it doesn't feel like one. I'm like, where's the fighting and the passion and the, and, and he's like, who hurt you? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think it has, I think it has calmed down a bit for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds great. I'm glad that you're in a more secure place now and have some predictability about your life. What's this community like in Albany?
1: Uh, there's, I mean, it's, it's very, very close knit. There's like, maybe there's two, we call we say there's two and a half gay bars. The scene is not at all as like intense as New York city or, or anything like that.
0: And do you guys go out solo or do you mostly do everything together?
1: So our, our schedules are so completely opposite. Um, he, he works, he works at the casino. So he works, uh, I guess what they call the premium shift. He like, he goes to work at 4.30 and comes home at one thirty in the morning. So it's like, you know, the, the time that we do spend together is on his day off. I go out to bars and clubs cause I DJ a lot now. So I, yeah, I, t- I tend to go out solo more, which is, I, I think at first he kind of resented me for it because he 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 went from living in like the heart of New Orleans to Albany. <laughs> And, you know, for me, after living in Jersey City and, and going to New York every day and, and all that kind of stuff, and then to move back up here where it's sort of, it's, everywhere is sort of suburban. For me, I like being closer to nature. So it's the fact that I'm, you know, I can go out into the woods for the weekend. Like, that's that's what I wanted. He's He's kind of like, He's very much a city boy, so he's a little shell-shocked. Mm,
3: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm very much more of a sexual person than he is. Mm, mm-hmm.
0: um, is he older?
1: He's a little older. He's only he's only five years older. So as we're getting older into our 30s, we're, the, the age gap is closing a little bit, <laughs> I think. Yes. Um, like most of my long-term relationships have been like 20-year age gaps. That's right. Um, super daddy issues. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: And then I I think I think during the pandemic, I had a realization that I had to be my own daddy.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's still something that I want sexually for sure, but it's not I I don't think that I could do that again. Yeah. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. Well, it sounded like from your interview that it wasn't just sexual with the the daddies in the past. It's that you had this expectation that they save you or or support you, you know, and maybe maybe you don't need that as much now I, I don't want to put words into your mouth but do you think that's accurate
1: absolutely what so what happened was for a long time I relied on my parents uh, so after I got out of Utah and everything I uh, I relied on my parents a lot and in 2019 my dad got really sick and my stepmom called me and she was like we can't help you anymore mm-hmm. and then as soon as that rug got pulled out from under me it was like okay now you got to figure it out yeah so I started working two jobs I went back to school I started doing sound design and I was working my ass off like September of 2019 all the way until March 2020 when the shutdown happened so I didn't experience any like I didn't go out I didn't have hang out with friends I didn't do anything I was like work 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 and then it just went boom, and stopped. And I was like, whoa, what am I going to do now? Um, so and I, and I had to learn how to take care of myself. And as I started doing that, I realized that I didn't need anybody. And I started finding out things about myself that I really didn't get a chance to take a look at when I was still being helped out by my real father. Right? Like, that was so...
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It was a shitty, rude awakening but it absolutely had to happen.
0: I also think it's something that a lot of us just experience in our lives. At some point, we're like, oh, yeah, I can't really call mom and dad anymore for assistance, you know, and you just happened to also figure that out during a pandemic, <laughs> you know. So congratulations to you t- for pulling through. It sounds like you've you've had some obstacles put in front of you, but you're overcoming them.
1: Trying to anyway. I mean, it's the the universe keeps throwing curveballs at me every day, but you know. Mm-hmm.
0: I wake up in a panic sometimes. You know, actually, pretty much every single day, and and the thing I say to myself most is, "You're doing okay. This, you're doing the best you can." Yeah. You know, and that helps. It helps to just say that. You know, we're getting through this. This is hard. You know. Um so so congratulations to you for for pulling through. Um I'm just going to ask you a few questions about your your interview since we have just listened to it. Um what was it like listening to yourself 3 years ago? Did it help help you reflect or what was your biggest takeaway?
1: My biggest takeaway was that I needed therapy. <laughs> <laughs> no um
0: well i i will say that like that the fruit bowl interview often feels like a therapy session so that's not an uncommon takeaway for this for people who are interviewed
1: i definitely heard somebody who wasn't wasn't really sure of themselves and was Mm. was sort of i think it was i think i was facing what i was talking about as i was talking about it (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: you were kind of I mean, just from what you've just described me, that time that when we did speak in person three years ago, it sounded like it was a very, uh, it was a transitional part of your life.
1: It was. Yeah, for sure. Um, And I can hear it. Yeah, I definitely could hear it in the interview. I
0: mean, I didn't know this at the time, but you were living with somebody who, who physically abused you.
1: Multiple times.
0: That's, I mean, but again, you've You've moved past that, so congratulations. But I'm I'm sure that maybe listening to the interview help puts you right back to where you were when that was happening.
1: Yeah, it was a little it was a little triggering, um, but also it was validating because it showed me how far I have come.
0: I'm so glad to hear that. I really don't want it to be traumatizing.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. It's I it, it it was cathartic for sure.
0: I'm I'm glad to hear that.
1: And it also it also in listening to my story in a linear fashion, it made me realize how fucking badass I am. Right. Because I spend a lot of my time in this imposter syndrome that hmm. has been plaguing me my entire life. Yeah. And to hear it spoken out loud, it's just like, yeah, I did that. I I overcame those things. Right. And I'm still overcoming those things, but it's like, wow. <laughs> Right. And I, I correct me if I'm wrong, in the interview we we touched on a lot of survivor stuff, right?
0: Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So after that I reconnected with a lot of my old friends from the programs and we actually went to DC to lobby for change. So for change for what? For change for th- for the troubled teen industry. To try to pass the Congregate Care Act and lobby with, with um, representatives and it was really, really cool.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. So to hear it, to hear that story again, it's another, Mm -hmm. it's another pat. It's a, it's another proverbial pat on my back that's like, you're still here. You're still going.
0: And you're like advocating for others who were in your same position. That's, that's amazing.
1: And all the, all the kids who are still there, like these programs are still, these programs still exist. Mm -hmm. And they're not, there's no government mandate that has any oversight. So anybody can, you know, they can hire anybody and and these kids are getting abused constantly. And a lot of the people that that I came in contact with afterwards who are survivors suffer from PTSD, CPTSD, anxiety, drug addiction, like all these, like a plethora of issues that stem from... The trauma.
0: Right. Of what what was supposed to be a care opportunity. Exactly. And something that was going to help them ends up re-traumatizing them. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty fucked up. Um, You mentioned that when you listened to your interview, you were like, this person needs therapy. But then (laughs) you also recently said that you're in therapy. Like, uh, when did you make the decision to go into therapy?
1: I think I got back into therapy during the pandemic. So, like may of 2020
0: that's good I'm, Yeah, i'm glad to hear that um when you were listening to your interview is there something you've discovered or learned about sex since then any revelations or or evolutions in your your tastes or your habits
1: no they're pretty much they're pretty much the same um yeah I realized that I do masturbate a lot more and I think it's because I'm trying to get that like little drop of dopamine. (laughs) Yes. You know? Um, Mm -hmm. And like this, like, you know, to have a little like oxytocin that comes in. That's the other thing that, that is strange um, that I've been dealing with is not feeling a rush or like hormonal, Stuff because of my thyroid issue that I have that's like Mm. when I kiss my partner I don't there's like no feeling Mm. and also when I have relations with other people there's no feeling it's like it's Mm. almost like I'm pulling from a tank that's empty and it's and I know that it's it's because of my hypothyroidism but it's also and I've read online that people also feel this way as well where it's like you have no adrenaline left because it's your stress hormones are all out of whack. So like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I get that rush anymore.
0: Do you find yourself having sex less often then?
1: Um, no, I find myself having sex or trying to have sex more often
0: Mm, to kind of get the feeling.
1: Yeah. I'm looking for that. Yeah. I think that makes sense. I know that before I was doing it as an escape, because it was some place that I could go where I could be in control. Yeah. Uh, And my therapist even explained to me, she was like, you're a man. You are actually genetically wired to express yourself through sex rather than emotions. And I was like, well, that's, you know, And she's like, no, 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 I'm not. She's like, this isn't like a gender thing. This is like a, this is like your physical makeup because of your chromosomal, whatever. Yeah. Um, Male-presenting organisms, she said, are more likely to try to express themselves through anger and sex than emotional release. And I was like, oh. That explains why I'm always like, do I want to go to the adult bookstore? Mm,
0: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do I want
1: to go to the bathhouse?
0: Are those all options in Albany? Do they have those things?
1: There's a bathhouse in Troy that is disgusting and falling apart. Um, (laughs) But it's the only place that people can go, so that's what they do. There's a couple adult bookstores that are just very seedy, because it's mm-hmm. the area is like state workers, construction people, and and like scientists, because there's mm. like a big pharmaceutical place. Um,
0: that is quite a stew.
1: <laughs> it is quite a stew, uh, but like the construction workers will get off work and they'll go to the movie the movie store, and like sometimes that'll be you know, but. Mm-hmm. um, for the most part, it's like the it's like not cute.
0: <laughs> and what about like the online thing? There is that.
1: Um, I think the college kids are dialed in more to that. Mm. I think mm-hmm. that there's like definitely more of a a Like sniffies is very popular. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of people who run like Scruff and Grinder, but ne- I mean, obviously not nearly as much as New York City, but right. There's yeah. definitely, there's definitely, it's definitely happening.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you do find yourself with a little sexual energy that you want to burn off, do you often go to the external or do you just jerk off? Like, how do you normally kind of negotiate that? I
1: have an internal conversation with myself that's like... Right. Risk, mm-hmm. benefit. I know. Risk, benefit. It was COVID and now it's monkeypox. So it's yeah. like... I have both vaccinations. I just got vaccinated uh, last Wednesday for my second shot.
0: For, for monkeypox? For
1: monkeypox. Saratoga County got a bunch of vaccines. And we were all kind of looked at each other like, that's weird. Hmm. That's like Trump land. Yeah. They didn't do it in Albany County. They didn't do it in, Cer- in Connecticut County, which is like much more blue. Mm-hmm which was really weird, and we were like, uh, I guess we're going to drive to Saratoga County to get our monkeypox vaccine. When I tell you that that monkeypox vaccine clinic, people were, like, in hoodies... Wow. ...with glasses. I was like, oh, hmm. wow, okay. It's like, and of course, it's like, like,
0: it's like the, the live version of a headless torso pic. exactly, exactly <laughs> what
1: it is. It That's
0: was, so interesting.
1: I was blown, blown away.
0: So you do this sort of, like, risk analysis before... Yeah, heading out. Yeah, I can see how maybe right now you wouldn't be seeking a lot of external sort of partners, maybe just for purposes of being safe. Mm-hmm. My next one was a question about the recovery program, and, and you already really t- touched on it. Um, like my question here was, I, I composed it before we just started talking just now, and it was, was there any positive aspects of that? looking back on it now, or was it all trauma? It sounds like it was really not a positive experience on the whole.
1: That's a complicated question. Yeah. Because there are certain aspects of the programs that I went to that make sense, right? Yes. Family therapy, physical activity, going to school, having a small class, like things that are tailored towards people who are like neurodivergent and, and, Okay, great. Yeah. Cool. Structurally speaking, that works. Yeah. It was the people in charge and and the tactics that they used and the manipulations and the fact that it was capitalism. So it was like mm-hmm. it wasn't a nonprofit. So they, yeah. would, they would hold us against our will and then they would demand more money from our parents if we messed up. And mm. like
0: they had an investment in keeping you there.
1: Right. Right. So, so when you look at it from that lens, it's disgusting.
0: This is so interesting be, to me because like I had a similar conversation with Puddin, whose interview we, we listened to a couple of episodes ago who was in Exodus, you know, oh. the, the Christian sort of
1: was it like pray the gay away.
0: Yeah. And he made the point of saying that, while the core of it is, you know, rancid and, Kind of disgusting. Well, very disgusting. Like it was also the first time in his life where he actually met other queer people. So there were aspects of it that were positive too. And I'm kind of hearing you say the same thing, even though this was traumatizing and also the organization itself was motivated by, you know, capitalism. It probably also changed your trajectory in some positive ways too. I don't know. What would you say?
1: I definitely think that if I had not have gone to those programs, I'd probably be either in jail, institutional, institutionalized or dead Yeah, because I was doing drugs and I was mm-hmm. acting out and I was not doing well at school and I was, you know, going through a very harsh time as a teenager that I don't think that I trust myself enough to have not have put myself into severe danger. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. However, I did not need to be taken at three o'clock in the morning. I did not need to be locked up. A lot of people, when I tell my story to them, they're like, I'm surprised you haven't either had a psychotic break, taken to the bottle or a drug addict or have some sort of like crazy personality, whatever, like. Which is, again, a testament to myself that I'm like, I'm a survivor. I'm yeah. uh, I'm dealing with it. I'm processing it. Because a lot of people don't get that chance. A lot of people yeah. are in a very dark place still. Since having gone to those programs, I have not wanted to use drugs or drink or do anything in that regard. It's actually like a part of, it's a, it's a point of contention for me and my relationship. So he was a big drinker before he mm. met me. And whenever we go on vacation, he'll drink to the point where he gets a little bit drunk and I'll immediately be triggered and start to shut down and start to disassociate and he'll be like, what's wrong? And I'll say things like, well, I can't tell you to stop drinking because obviously you're having a good time, but right now I'm in a position where I'm like freaking out in my head because it's bringing up all this stuff. Um, So I think I was conditioned by these programs to have that reaction, yeah. so I don't know that I don't know that if I didn't go away, I would still have that reaction. I would probably be an alcoholic or mm-hmm. have a drug problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I can say in in that sense that I'm I'm grateful for that, if, if only to say that that point that that part of it was helpful.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. But everything else, throw it the fuck away.
0: Right what's the biggest takeaway for you for, from listening to your story from three years ago? What, what was the biggest sort of standout or revelation?
1: Well, it's interesting listening to it three years ago and also having listened to other people's Mm -hmm. first of all, fruit bowl is amazing because it makes, it makes queer people feel so less alone because I think as queer people, we are brought up to think that there's something wrong with us and we're so ordinary (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're extraordinary, but we're, you know what I mean? Like we're like, like in, in other queer spaces, if you put a bunch of us in the same room and you ask us to tell the story, there's so much intersection.
0: Oh yeah. A lot of
1: overlap. And I don't think I realized that before listening to my story and then listen and then hearing other people's. So I think the biggest takeaway that I got was that I'm not alone and that my story is, is, uh, my voice is, important I
0: do just want to apologize for taking so long to produce your episode. <laughs> it's okay. Listen, art takes time. It does. And also documentaries take time. You know, if if I were just slapping the raw audio into a podcast episode and and putting it up on my feed, this whole process would go a lot faster, but I'm a lot more obsessive and a lot more careful because I do care. That your story is told in a way in which you're happy you know that process just takes time so
1: i definitely listened to it and i was like i i listened to it and i listened to it again and i had this moment of is this too much am i revealing too much of myself because mm. this is really vulnerable right like this is yeah. like my i was and I, and I turned to my partner and i said i'm scared about this and he was like are you helping a young queer person by telling your story. Are you helping your inner child? Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh yeah. Great. <laughs> right. So, so, and I, and I, that's when I was like, I don't really want to take anything out.
0: I'm so touched that you'd say that. Cause I, I say, I think the same thing. And actually next week I'm going to re-record my interview. I'm going to redo my own fruit bowl interview. And I'm like, I have so much anxiety about it, but I, I think the same thing that you just articulated out just now, which is that however mortifying or embarrassing my story is, I know that it is shared with a number of other people and listeners are going to be able to really relate to it and identify with it. And that is so important. And it's the whole reason why I do this.
1: (laughs) I feel so in community with the people that I've listened to and I didn't for a long time. Mm, hmm. Because I think as queer people, we're always like, we don't fit in.
0: Yeah. Or, or my my story is no one else's. Like, right. Which is true to a certain extent. But yeah, there's so many parts of our stories that do intersect and overlap and are similar. Yeah. Um. Is there anything that maybe you didn't hear in your interview that you really want people to know, or maybe something that you've learned since then?
1: Um. My politics have gotten a little bit more radical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think we've all had that happen during a pandemic. <laughs>
1: yes, uh, but mm. my so the the company that I'm working with now, we are a consulting firm that tries to do everything with a social justice and racial justice lens mm. to try to move the needle for the most marginalized among us.
0: Mm. In in what way for for health advocacy or
1: uh no so like we we work with nonprofits, for-profits small businesses large businesses Mm. pharmaceutical companies startups like um we are we're actually working on a symposium um to address the bodily autonomy issue that we all find ourselves in with the striking down of roe v wade and then whatever Mm. else comes next so it's two queer two, two queer men Two black women two white women that's the okay. the group um oh, okay and we, we try to do everything from an intersectional lived experience kind of way um so yeah we're just we're working on this really awesome symposium right now we're also working on a convention of societal disruptors so like getting all the organizations, all the grassroots organizations across the country to come together in like one, almost like a CPAC kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> to discuss like how we're going to fix this.
0: So you're working in this sort of advocacy sphere now. How is that different than when we spoke three years ago? Like what provoked that?
1: So when we spoke three years ago, I believe I was. I think I was just working in like retail or like mm. customer service job. I think, and then this particular job. So I'm the director of media for my current job. So okay. I went. I went from being like the bottom of the bottom, yeah, to a consulting firm where they celebrate my neurodiversity. They celebrate my work in music and my work in media and all these things that. Had I had stayed at, at those jobs before, because I'm technically not qualified, right? Because I, I only have an associate's degree, I would still be working for like $15 an hour. And now I'm making good money and I have a great team and it's creative and I feel like I'm doing something. I feel like I'm yeah. really doing something that's fulfilling and is changing, changing the world. And before, if, if, if I was in... You know working at a customer service job it would be like get up go to work come home play video games Mm -hmm. go to bed you know and i and i did not feel fulfilled at all
0: what do you think provoked that kind of shift in your perspective and your prioritization or for your job like was it the pandemic or maybe your time in therapy like how do you think that evolved
1: um so i have a mentor his name is richard he he's the owner of a company and um, during the pandemic, we talked a lot about what was going on with George Floyd and all the traumatic events that happened during the pandemic. I think for me, it was like, we can't go back to the way it used to be. Yeah. We can't. And I always say like, if you, if you think that it's okay to go back to status quo after this major trauma event that we've all just experienced, you completely missed the assignment.
0: Yeah, well, that's great.
1: Yeah, I think it was the pandemic. I think it was finishing school. I think it was getting rid of my toxic roommate. I think it was going back into therapy. I think it was a lot of things that awakened in me uh, a fire that I didn't have before.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Because I was cool.
1: so, I was honestly so busy trying to survive that I had no, I was, none of this was on my radar, right? Mm-hmm. So if if you give people the resources that they need, they can do things that help them as humans.
0: Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much for updating us. I'm so glad that you're in a good place now. And I wish you all the best and thank you for updating us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Andrew is a gifted musician and you can find a link to more of his music in the show notes for this episode. For now... Here is his song, The Man I Am.
2: Interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit FruitBowlPodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. FruitBowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people indigenous people and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming-of-age by making a small, monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate. Or write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And of course, you can also follow us for now on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.